Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's great. This week on Faded, episode 11, we have John Udis, who comes to us from our great friends at WSCA-FM in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. John is the program director of Addiction Recovery Services, which is a treatment facility um, with some great programs that John explains to us. We get into John's background, which is really great. Uh, He went to school and wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do and then ended up in this field and has found such great positivity and inspiration uh, and purpose in doing this work. We talk a little bit about uh, the terms disease and trauma and the stigma behind those and the weight of those words and get a little bit into, you know, the perception and the approach for treatment when it comes to those words and using proper terms and making sure that we're not approaching some of this stuff as really scary. Uh, He talks a bit about how the treatment um, at his facility is approached. There are definitely a few ways uh, for folks to get better. Uh, There is no one same person from person to person, so uh, the facility certainly treats everybody as their own individual person as part of their process and uh, treatment approach, which is great. He talks a bit about emotional stories and um, the fact that everybody goes through something. We've talked about that before, for sure. The future of education, uh, the importance of mindfulness, something we touched on as well in episode 10. Uh, experiential engaged learning. He is also um, an adjunct professor uh, in New Hampshire. So he's he's done a lot. He also helps us by sharing some really great resources that we're going to make sure we post to our website as well as our social channels. So please make sure to visit Instagram, Facebook, and www.fadedpodcast.com for great resources that are going to help um, not only the, the family members of loved ones, but to kind of dig a little deeper into what we've been able to share uh, thus far. So uh, thanks again, John, for joining us. We know this will not be the last time. We've got a long way to go. Uh, We hope you all enjoy this episode and we'll talk to you next time. Welcome back. This is um, an exciting episode because we have gone past double digit uh, episode 10 and we're into episode 11 this week. So I'm really excited. And with us this week, we have a special guest that I'm very excited about. We've talked many times about trying to get a medical professional, somebody that has uh, more clout than what we have had so far in talking about addiction. We have John Udis here, uh, who is the program director for Addiction Recovery Services in uh, New Hampshire. How are you, John? Great. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, I think just, you know, to to kind of level set here, we've got an audience that has been listening to Faded um, over the past 10 weeks now. All different experiences and understandings, education levels, etc. And so what we're trying to do through my brother Chris's story and through the guests that we've had on is just shed light, talk about it, try and break the stigma as best we can. And a lot of what we've done so far is give Chris's recollection and our guests recollection of their experiences. What we know we can't do and what you hopefully can help us with today is just um, bringing a bit more education to, you know, the mental side
side and the treatment side of things because everybody's story is a little different. Um, and while we know that some of the recovery tools look the same, um, would just love kind of your opinion on how we go about things and, and what you've seen um, in your work, in your industry as you've gone through this. And so uh, before we get started, I would love to just kind of get a little background on you, how you got into this work um, and kind of what your role is today. Sure. Um, I definitely appreciate the opportunity and congratulations on your 11th episode. Sounds like Thanks. you guys are doing a great job reaching a wide audience. So, so basically, I, my role today is I'm the program director at Addiction Recovery Services, as you mentioned, and that's an intensive outpatient program in New Hampshire. We do four IOP groups on, um, that are four days a week for about five weeks, and we offer it at two different times each day from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. And that is kind of like, for those that don't know what IOP is, it's kind of like an intermediate step between just getting an individual therapist and going to like a residential rehab program. So sometimes folks will go to, will try to do an IOP to see if they can make changes and improvements in their life without having to go to residential or an inpatient program because maybe that's not necessary. Or sometimes they'll go to an inpatient program and then do IOP as their aftercare. So it's kind of a kind of a diverse group. You get people in all different kind of like points in their recovery sometimes, which has its benefits and disadvantages. But for the most part, it's kind of nice having that diversity because you can see people at different points in the process kind of supporting one another. Prior to that, I worked in a variety of different types of behavioral health programs. Um, I worked in outpatient medication management programs that use buprenorphine, more commonly known as Suboxone, and there's a couple other brand names for it. Um, and then also methadone. Um, I've worked in residential programs. I've worked in detox programs. I've worked in residential with adolescents and adults. Um, so I've seen quite a few different people dealing with various types of addictions and severities and things like that. I'm also a licensed independent clinical social worker and a master's licensed alcohol and drug counselor in the state of New Hampshire. Got all of it. How did you get into this? Like, is this personal to you? Like, what, what made you want to go into this work? So it is personal to me. I mean, I think you'll hear most of the time from people that we all have, you know, acquaintances and people in our life that struggle to varying degrees with mental health and um, behavioral health problems. So, you know, I had family members um, that have dealt with those kinds of problems that, um, part of what piqued my interest, but then I think the other thing that really got me into counseling is I wasn't really too clear on what I wanted to do when I went to get my bachelor's degree. Um, so after being undecided for a couple of years, I picked psychology and I was interested in people and kind of behavior myself. And then others also always used to say I was um, a good communicator and a good listener. So those were kind of the main things that brought me into this field. It's been a really great journey and a great fit for me. Yeah, that's awesome. What are you seeing just trends-wise in treatment and kind of how things are going now from when you first started? Are you feel, do you feel like we're making headway in, in the way that we're approaching things um, and how people are being treated? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's been a ton of progress, I would say. And one of the most important parts of that to me is the movement away from a really kind of rigid 
view of recovery when I first did kind of start getting anywhere close to this field in 2002, 2003, after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, programs were still very much in a mindset of there's only one way to get better. There was, you know, attempts to kind of coerce behavior change as opposed to try to teach it and support it in people, which is kind of a different approach. And um, the movement away from understanding that some people who get better and achieve positive results in their life and recovery are not always 100% abstinent from all substances while they're getting better. That's necessary for some people and very useful. And from a standpoint of eliminating any risk, obviously not taking any drugs or alcohol is the, the way to completely eliminate risk. But I think not acknowledging that people are getting better in a process that sometimes involves learning and trying different things and making mistakes along the way wasn't really helping them. It was sort of, it was creating shame and it wasn't even intentional sometimes on the part of treatment providers, but it would leave people feeling like they weren't doing good enough. So they might give up. Yeah. Interesting. And big part of our message um, and what a lot of people are, are finding as kind of aha moments is just this understanding that this is a disease, that it's not something that um, is a choice and that it really affects so many parts of um, a person and their life and, and the way, you know, mind, body, spirit that they go about things. Can you talk just a little bit about um, the, the disease part of it, the mental part of it, and just what's going on in somebody that has this addiction or alcoholism? Yeah, it's interesting uh, to use the term disease. I think when it's being used accurately, the goal is to reduce shame and stigma so that people can acknowledge that this is a this is a health problem not just a simple choice that people are making to ruin their lives or to hurt their family members and things like that so i think from that standpoint helping people understand the kind of medical um, and physiological aspect of it can decrease stigma the term disease can get murky for people and so for some folks that are trying to get better if we don't do a good enough job of kind of explaining to them what we mean and being kind of specific about what, what the you know, physiological components of it are, then you're going to get resistance from some people looking for help who don't feel that maybe they have a disease or they wouldn't maybe use that term to describe it. Um, so it's interesting because I think from like a public health standpoint and reducing stigma and educating you know, everyone, the goal of classifying addiction as a disease was to reduce stigma, but unintended consequence is sometimes it prevents people from seeking help um, as soon as they might otherwise, if they think of their substance use or alcohol use as not having quite reached that point yet of being a disease. So I think the way we have that conversation a lot of times is to really get more specific um, explain to clients like and folks that we're working with, like you can you can refer to it as a disease if you feel like that description fits what your use was like. And if you don't like that term, you don't have to use it. And what we can talk to you about is the medical and physical components of this and the ones that fit your story, you can kind of identify with and the ones that you don't feel describe what you're going through, what you're experiencing. 
you don't have to kind of take on because that's another I would say advancement that's happened is that we realize substance use problems are on a continuum now. It used to be more of this perspective of either you have this problem or you don't. Um, when in reality, there's a range of like severe symptoms that some folks have, and then sometimes more, you know, mild circumstances. And we don't want to stop the people who haven't gotten severe yet from getting help earlier. Really interesting. And I, you're right. The word disease, you know, if, you know, if someone tomorrow says you have this disease, that word is very heavy. So, you know, as we are trying to learn how to potentially approach loved ones um, or have conversations, that's one of the biggest questions we get is, you know, how do I approach somebody if I think they might have an issue? Is there a word or is there a, a line or is there a way to approach that you've, that you've learned is kind of the best way to start these conversations? Maybe I know it's not up to us to classify them, but is there something that we can do as loved ones in conversation to, to try and spark that? Sure. That's tough because those conversations are sometimes um, kind of guided by a level of impact that the other person's substance use problem has had on that family member or individual. Yep. So it can be really hard, understandably, to approach those conversations sometimes with care and compassion and curiosity. But I would say as best you can to explore it with the other person um, and try to kind of ask them, let them know how you're feeling about it. Like I'm, I'm feeling concerned about what's going on between us or I'm feeling concerned about, you know, how late you've been coming on at, at home at night. And I just wanted to, I wanted to talk with you about that kind of inviting them into a conversation because I think what a lot of times folks who have not sought help yet are experiencing is a lot of shame. Yeah. And so if we approach the conversation with a lot of intensity and, and anger and frustration, it's going to kind of push them further into hiding. And again, I understand completely from a family member's perspective how hard it can be yeah. to manage that anger and frustration when there's these kinds of problems happening. A really great resource is something called CRAFT. It's a community reinforcement approach and family training. That's what the CRAFT acronym stands for. And it's a, it's a really great guide for family members that focuses more on things like how do I talk with them about this yeah. and less on the behavior of the other individual. Right. You know, another great point that they make in that book is to not, when someone is impaired, that's not the time to have the conversation, right. trying to pick your spots um, and look for, a, look for an opportunity maybe when you can really kind of try to connect with them and express your concern and talk with them about it. Great. Yeah. That, thank you for that resource too. It's, it's the hardest thing. And, and what we've talked about quite a bit is just, you know, creating an environment of non-judgment, um, but also, you know, for, for loved ones, getting help for yourself, right? Helping yourself and, and, and kind of seeking more education. Um, so that's really well aligned with what we've been saying. I think the big question is we have a number of listeners who would like to approach a loved one, but don't necessarily know if they have an issue. So I think, you know, resources like that would be really helpful. Talk a little bit about, so in, in, in treatment, for those who aren't as familiar with what to expect out of, you know, if they came to addiction recovery services, can you talk just a little bit about what that, what that journey looks like if somebody um, comes to visit you um, and, and kind of the way you guys approach treatment? Yeah, so for us, again, it's kind of that intermediate level where, 
they can expect to see a wide kind of variety of people and diversity, you know, within the group of people that are seeking help from us. Our approach is always going to be to really try to meet the person where they're at and convey a message of acceptance and also that as individuals, even though you're having these problems, you you matter as a person and as a human being. Um, and no matter how bad it's gotten for you or how bad it feels, you matter. And we want to try to help you start getting support. Um, and I think that that you know can help hopefully bring some of the walls down and some of the resistance down that people have entering into treatment sometimes. Yeah, that's great. Where have you seen the most success or what are you, where, where do you say like, it, what's the secret sauce for when people come in and, and you know, like what, since you've been in this for so long, like wh where do you see it happening best when people are trying to seek treatment? That's a great question. And I think it's, it's a loaded one. <laughs> yeah. And there are, there are parts of that can, that can look very, very different from person to person. Uh, just based on the circumstances of their life, whether or not they're employed or unemployed in a committed relation, not in a committed relationship or not in a committed relationship, if they have children or not, um, all those are going to be factors. What I can say is that from what I've seen with folks who change in a positive direction, two of the kind of most important skills they develop is an ability to experience and tolerate their feelings differently and an ability to communicate and um, communicate and set boundaries differently. So it's kind of like that combination of them learning to kind of manage their internal world, like their feelings and their thoughts, and then also manage their external communication with others. Those seem to be, I would say, you know, two of the most important critical skills for people to develop. And that's kind of, I would say, part of a recovery from most behavioral health and mental health symptoms, that those two things play a large role for people getting better. Yeah, I was wondering that. So, so for, to that point, I mean, are there, is it a lot of the same tools when you look across kind of the, just the mental health world, regardless of addiction, alcoholism, anxiety, depression, is it, is it a lot of the same tools that people use to get better? The kind of behavioral tools, I would say, are the same. Yep. Medications are going to vary, you know, from um, specific diagnosis to diagnosis. But, you know, someone with anxiety and or someone with substance use disorder, who are also the same person sometimes because we know they're co-occurring, you know, problems that happen. They're both going to benefit from learning to communicate their needs more effectively and talk with people and express themselves differently and learning to practice skills that allow them to calm down and manage their emotional responses differently. So that's kind of like a human being thing, right? Like, so all yeah. of us benefit from those things without, even if we don't have any diagnosis at all. Yeah, that's, it's been funny. We've talked about that quite a bit here. Um, you know, as I'm learning about the tools that, you know, Chris uses for his recovery and has used in recovery. Uh, I find myself a lot of times saying, wow, I, I could probably do, you know, a nightly inventory at night or you know, reflect on how my day is going to be and then was right. So it's, right. it's really cool actually to get to know those tools. And then those inventories just real quick, because you mentioned it, things like doing an inventory, um, or reflecting on your day, 
that's a tool exactly that allows you to gain insight about your emotions and your interactions with people and where you did well and where you could have done better. So it does those kinds of tools kind of emphasize that piece of managing my communication and managing my emotions in a healthier way. Yep. And, but a lot of what I'm understanding too, is that it takes a willingness from the person seeking treatment in order for it to work at all. Right. I mean, do you see that, you know, there's people that push back on the treatment once they come through or how do you kind of break that break through that, that uh, wall, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, folks have definitely varying levels of, you know, they call it resistance. You can describe it a lot of different ways, but, um, and that can show up in a lot of different ways too. You know, one person might be real cavalier about it and just sort of, you know, even say, I'm not stopping, you know, I don't want to be here. Yeah. Family members asked me to come here and then other people can show other versions of that. That might just be sort of like a disinterest, you know, maybe they have a really busy life and an important job. And so they're kind of, they're not being provocative about it and, you know, saying straight out, I don't want this, but you know, they might miss sessions or, you know, prioritize other things in their life. And so our way of handling that is to, again, kind of meet people where, where they're at. This is one of the areas where I think, you know, some, some treatment approaches or programs might not agree with this, but we sort of lower our expectations of people, which might not be the best way to describe it either, but in reality, it's not carrying that like expectation that a person is going to show up the way that we want them to as the treatment provider to every session. Like, it's our job to be well-trained enough to navigate those conversations with them and help them identify their goals and build up their motivation in a way that feels appropriate for them. That's what we're trained to do. It's not their job to show up how I want them to, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, I, and you're right. Everybody's story is, is so different. So tell me a little bit more. We've, we've mentioned the term dual diagnosis um, quite a bit as we've gone. Can you just talk a little bit about the, the, we, we touched on it quickly here, but just kind of the, the two sides of trying to get somebody through treatment. And I know, um, you know, in Mark's story, when we chatted with Mark, um, you know, he talked a lot about kind of finding some solutions to childhood trauma and things in the past, but can you talk just a little bit more about that and the importance of kind of approaching the dual diagnosis side of things? Yes. Um, I think if you're using a really trauma-informed kind of person-centered approach, you can navigate kind of like those, both of those things, um, the, the mental health, you know, when they refer, refer to dual diagnosis, usually talking about some type of mental health diagnosis that could be things like depression and anxiety, and it could be things like bipolar or schizophrenia um, or anything like that, and then also having a substance use disorder. And being knowledgeable about that, you want to create an environment where people can feel accepted and like they can get help for whatever their problems are. And it's okay if, if, if a treatment provider or a program doesn't either have that capacity or want to necessarily deal as much with dual diagnosis, they can kind of, you know, mold their treatment program the way that they would like. But I think if you are going to end up seeing those clients, no matter what, getting your staff to kind of like be trained in things like trauma-informed care 
is really important. And so what that is, is it's, it's a popular term right now in the field, but it is also a very useful one and an effective approach. And it's basically understanding that people have a story and trying to explore as opposed to kind of that, the problem side of things, like what's wrong with people, you're looking more at what's happened to people. You know, what has their experience been like over their lifetime to try to understand that. And if you talk with people in that way, it can again support them with any of those diagnoses. So part of it, I think, is really being trying to be strength-based, focused on the solution and less focused on identifying every you know defect or pathology that we think somebody has. Yeah. Do you find in general though that that people have that most people have multiple layers to their story um, when they're coming through or, you know, could it stand alone, I guess, with addiction? I'm trying to think back on Chris's story and he doesn't have a ton of, you know, in the past, you know, things that we would all consider situations or traumas or anything like that. But I could definitely see, you know, personality wise, he probably has some layers there, but do most people have multiple layers to them? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. And I mean, I think another way to think about that conversation is not everybody has PTSD. Everybody experiences trauma over the course of their life, though. You may not, and, and again, it's kind of like the disease conversation again. That might not be the term that someone elects to describe that situation. But if you start talking to people about their lives and hearing your, their stories, at the very least, you're going to hear things like losses, ended relationships, lost money, lost home, lost jobs, any of those things, which are traumatic in the sense that they create challenging emotions yeah. again so that's sort of like that doesn't mean that they have to call it trauma but looking at the way that everybody has an emotional story and has things that have happened to them um, and a lot of times what we're able to help people end up putting their finger on is in one way or another when their drug or alcohol use started at least it was to manage feelings yeah. like part of the reason is to either change or enhance a feeling or a mood that they're having. So I find what really works is to try to make a lot of these concepts universal to human beings, as opposed to like keeping people in their like diagnosis boxes. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? um, so people definitely have layers. And then those are kind of like your, your more common universal traumas. And then you definitely will have, you know, also people who are struggling with this that have experienced much more difficult traumas or much more, you know, serious or, you know, severe things that can create a lot of PTSD, whether that's, you know, witnessing violence or um, other types of abuse, abuses that have happened. And so helping people to know that the experience itself and the details of that experience might be different, but the human emotion part is something that we can all kind of identify around yeah. seems to really help everyone engage in that conversation together in a productive way. Yeah, that's super helpful too. And, and you're right, the, the, the scary word, right? Trauma, scary word, disease. It's kind of like kind of breaking that down a little bit. It can be much smaller than the way that we all perceive that when we hear that word or those words. Right. Talk a little bit about how do we, so beyond treatment facilities and beyond, um, you know, podcasts like this, maybe, <laughs> how do we be, how do we approach education and learning 
in our society, you know, as a whole better? Like, how do we, and I would love to know your thoughts um, and what you know about, like, I'm not as close to obviously right now, um, not having kids of my own, but you know, school systems growing up and, and when we can teach more about whether it's just mental health in general or addiction, alcoholism, just talk a little bit about how we can be better um, with this education. Yeah, that's another area where improvements have been made. You know, things like mindfulness, another buzzword of today, but also a very useful skill in behavior to help someone learn. They're starting to teach, teach kids to do that in schools. And what that does is it allows them to start developing at an early age when it's easier to learn, when our brains are more plastic, as they say, more, more learning and molding of your frontal lobe can happen. Um, they're learning to tolerate and regulate emotions and understand their emotions and thoughts and behaviors through things like mindfulness. And that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. So I think the mistake that might've been made historically was our attempts to educate people around behavioral health problems, particularly substances and drugs, was very focused on what's wrong with the drugs and why it's bad, when in reality, it's okay to have that conversation from time to time in different ways, but a better preventative measure is to teach kids to manage the reasons why they might use drugs in the future, which is to tolerate emotions <laughs> and and understand the connection between their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors differently. Yeah. So teaching them things like mindfulness, teaching them how to have conversations like this, how to use communication skills like I statements and the types of things that folks will learn, you know, as adults, if they end up in a treatment program, <laughs> you're helping them learn more preventatively as a, you know, six, seven, eight year old. Yep. It's funny. Chris, um, in episode 10 talked about that. We, you know, we said, you know, when, when I, when we have kids, how will we approach it and what can we be doing? And he said something very similar. He said, I just want to teach them to know themselves, right. And to know who they are and, and, you know, if something were to happen, um, or if they were to go through something that they know a bit more, um, and are a bit more in tune to who they are. So I love hearing that. And when do you think, I mean, you know, we have the, the dare programs and all that stuff when we're younger. I mean, do you think those things, um, are, are important and helpful? I mean, I, I think the, the one that we kind of mentioned quite often is kind of the just say no campaign, which is funny now that I know more about all that, but are there, the, are those programs in schools? Do you think that's helpful or should we kind of pivot that eventually? I think it's definitely time to revamp them. Um, there's definitely huge critics of DARE. There's research out there that shows that it was pretty ineffective. Yeah. I recall the DARE program myself. One of the things that sticks out in my mind is the officer bringing in the big, you know, glassed in case yeah. that had all the different kinds of drugs in it. That part was not maybe so useful. There were components of the DARE program though where they did incorporate them trying to teach some communication skills and stuff like that. So there are maybe small pieces of that that could be pulled out and used still in ways that we've already talked about as far as teaching kids useful life skills and those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, revamping it, calling it something different, yeah. adding in more of the, of the life skills component yeah. would be useful. Mindfulness. And they're doing that in different ways by having you know, social workers in schools and, yep. and creating other programs like that. That's great. Yep. And talk a little bit about, you've done a, a little bit of teaching as well um, at a more um, senior in life 
level and in the college level. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you teach those students and kind of your approach in that realm as well? Yeah, so experiential engaged learning is definitely a big piece of this. So lecturing, not so helpful. So the same way I pro we would approach doing a psychoeducational component of a group session in therapy is also how teaching in the classroom, at least for me, happens. Um, the more conversation and interaction you get from the folks that you're talking with, the more things are actually going to get imprinted in their mind in some way or another. Um, so they have to actually experience something. The things that people remember, and this is kind of to tie in what we try to teach people about the brain as a program, we've really moved away from a lot of discussion about like neurotransmitters and neurons and synapses and stuff like that to make it a little bit more relatable in the sense of if you ask somebody about what they recall the most, it's going to be emotional experiences, either painful ones or very positive ones. So, you know, if you were just to ask somebody to tell you about a memory, they'd probably either pick something that was, maybe they'd pick something that was traumatic or they'd pick something that was very um, positive or an accomplishment that they had or something they really enjoyed. And so to help people learn, helping them establish some type of useful emotional connection to the content helps. And the only way to do that is by having a dialogue with them where there's some rapport built, not by standing in front of them and talking, you know, at, yeah. <laughs> at people all the time. Yeah, so. absolutely. No, that, that's really interesting. And what, what is just at the very basic level, cause I'm not as familiar, what is happening in the brain? So somebody that has, you know, a mental illness or that is going through addiction, alcoholism, is it something that's just innately part of them already? Does it grow? Like, can you talk a little bit more about like what's going on in the brain and, and kind of how we get to the point where somebody is, is, you know, classified as an alcoholic or addict? Sure. Also very complicated, but to try to break down those conversations and make them more accessible to people. Again, I think a useful tool is trying to bring in the components that everyone can identify with. So not everybody in a group of people, even if they've had a very long pattern of substance use, they're not going to identify as much with the idea that, um, you know, their dopamine receptors are completely depleted. They might, but there are some people, again, that are going to kind of either ignore that or maybe try to fight against it or say that that's not what's happening to them or they're not ready to admit it or whatever's going on. So talking instead about how everybody's brains change and adapt to situations that they're in is, is what we'll try to focus on. So again, it was that conversation I was mentioning earlier around the things that get imprinted the most on people's brains are emotions, negative or positive, and repetition. So things that have become habituated. And so when you look at someone who's developed a pattern of heavy substance use, it's usually had all three of those components. They've done it over and over again. So from a, from a pattern standpoint, it's equivalent to brushing your teeth or you know, walking the dog or driving to work in the morning for some people, right? Yep. Um, or at least maybe you know, something they do every weekend, if not every day. And they've had both 
emotionally rewarding experiences with it, sometimes earlier on in their use, and then painful emotional experiences with it. And so in that way, the drug use or the alcohol use is really kind of ingrained in their brain strongly. And so the recovery side of that, the solution to that is to help them repeat and develop new healthy habits that ingrain from repetition and also to have, to start to see a benefit of that or have a positive emotional connection to it. And so if you can create those two components for people, they'll be changing their brain. Right. They're repeating, if they're repeating healthy behaviors and they're talking about the positive benefit or the positive emotion they're gaining from it, that's how you can help someone to change their brain in a healthy direction after some of these uh, more harmful things have set in. Yeah. I love those, those analogies too, much more simple to understand, I think. And how long does it take, um, or is there a timeline for somebody's brain to go from addicted, um, to kind of back to normal for lack of a better term? <laughs> I think that, back to normal? <laughs> yeah, right. How does anybody do that? Right. Uh, right. <laughs> um, I think the timeline thing is always an interesting conversation because people like timelines, right? We like yeah. a plan. We like to be able to know, you know, we like to bring some certainty to things that can feel pretty scary and uncertain sometimes. Um, and unfortunately, I can't always provide that for people because yeah. there's not a set timeline. And I think that timeline is impacted by different circumstances for people too. So if someone who's had a pattern that's been set in for 30 years of daily use, the timeline is probably going to look a little different. Than someone who starts, you know, realizes this is a problem at 20 and starts addressing it and looking at ways to change it at that point. Um, So that's going to impact the timeline. You know, there's some research out there that supports the 21 days or 28 days to form a habit thing. And I think there is some, there's some relevance to that. Like if I do anything every day for 28 days, there's going to be some value and connection that, that gets derived from that. The problem there, though, is that's not enough to change sometimes and address all the things that someone might need to address to get to where they want to be. Right. Um, and other things impact that timeline, too, like the amount of support in their life, yep. employment or unemployment, family or less family, those kinds of things. So. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, even when you're physically removed from it, you know, and then going through the process, it's not like 28 days and you're done and you're good to go, right? right. It's, it's kind of the journey of working on it and, and getting back to yourself, if you will, I guess. What, right. um, for, for loved ones and family members out there, can you just give a couple of your kind of maybe favorite tip, tips? That sounds cheesy, but, you know, just, you know, as somebody that's learning and, and trying to understand this, like, just a couple things that are basic skills or things to understand about addiction and alcoholism. I still feel cheesy when I talk about it in, in group, but one of the most important communication skills is I statements and people heard that before probably. And some people will probably cringe when they hear that phrase, but what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean by that for those that don't when know? you communicate saying, so it's an interesting conversation. If you think about boundaries and the term codependency, which is another term you hear a lot, um, family members will sometimes develop unhealthy communication patterns with their family. And one of the sort of unhealthier ones that can kind of 
drive behaviors like drug and alcohol use. I want to be really careful here too, because I'm not also saying blaming families and saying that they're that their behavior of their loved one is their fault because that's also a convoluted way to describe it. But if you say to somebody, you're driving me crazy or you're making me nuts or you, something that begins with you like that, you're promoting kind of that, un, that unhealthy codependency type communication pattern. So an I statement turns that, what you're really trying to say when you say something like, like my dad used to say to me all the time, you're driving me nuts. You're making me crazy. You're killing my mother, your mother and I, or you know, what other kinds of crazy things you would say. And what he was really trying to say was, I feel really upset when you and your brother are fighting like that. Right. And so you're taking the emotional part of that description and as a person reclaiming responsibility for the feelings, which is a healthy thing to say, I feel instead of you're making me. If you're, yeah. if you're telling somebody that they're making you a certain way, then you're really giving up your power to them and making it so that anyone can push you around. Life can make you feel this way, that way, and this way over the course of any given day. Yeah. And so it's a really empowering thing to start to describe stuff as I feel or I appreciate or I would like it if starting your communication with those kinds of phrases is a really useful thing for both the person with the substance use problem and anybody who cares about them to learn to do. Yeah. So I statements is great. What else? Just basic principles, education that you feel like would be beneficial to loved ones out there that are learning about this. It kind of, when we talked about the 21 day, 28 day expectation type thing, um, lowering your expectations doesn't mean not having any boundaries. It just means making them more reasonable, right? So if a family member, if your family member goes to treatment, being very, you know, as best you can, open-minded, grateful and positive about that experience and also realistic about the possibility that that person can definitely get better and the possibility that they may still drink or take drugs again at some point, whether it's the day they get out of treatment or 10 years later, that's still there. So you can't carry that total expectation of 100% abstinence to the point that it makes you disappointed. You can, I think it's better as a family member, if you can believe in that possibility but without carrying a full expectation that it has to happen or that it's definitely going to happen. Right. I think that's probably the, the sweet spot to try to shoot for because then you can try to remain positive and optimistic and grateful while also being prepared to get more support if things you know, revert back or problems start to happen again. Yeah, great. And, and then, you know, learning um, about enable, enablement and, and not enabling, you know, throughout that journey and, um, and all that is really important. And what, what do you guys as a treatment facility, if, if anything, what do you provide to families or how do you approach families of, you know, those in treatment? Um, I know that our family went through a great program. It was about a week long when Chris was in his first um, rehab facility and it was really helpful because it gave us the basic education, but I would love to know what you guys do um, to approach families um, for resources. Yeah, 
we try to have some type of contact. Yeah. Our program philosophy is very empowerment based mm -hmm. and trying to teach and empower the individual with a substance use disorder to make choices, create new boundaries and make healthier autonomous decisions for themselves. And so what we do is within that, try to present to them that family contact is gonna support their individual roles. Like this can only enhance things if you allow us to have some type of contact with them. And so that will either ha happen through a phone, ideally, in some cases it doesn't happen at all because the person yeah. is just flat out, I'm not allowing my family to participate in this. Yep. Yep. Um, but then otherwise, we, we try to at least have a phone consultation kind of with family members, if not an in-person meeting or two with the individual in the group. And what we try to really focus on in those meetings is shared goals, like opening it up for them, a conversation of what their shared kind of like priorities and things to address are, and then maybe trying to provide them with those resources like craft. You know, there's a couple books that I'll recommend and then also, you know, a couple web pages that are really useful for family members that I can also share at the end here if you guys want. Yeah, I was going to say, other than, you know, you mentioned craft, are there any other kind of favorites that are go-tos for you for either the, the person in treatment or a family member, or a loved one? Yeah, so the craft book that's kind of written for families has a kind of a funny title, which is interesting because it doesn't, it implies that it does something that it doesn't actually do. So <laughs> it's called Get Your Loved One Sober. Hmm alternatives to nagging, pleading, and threatening. Huh. Um, so the second part of that title is interesting because I think it highlights the things that we're trying to remind families not to do. Right. But the idea that you're getting your loved one sober, that first half of that title is kind of funny because the, the craft approach is all about kind of like boundaries and understanding who two separate individuals are and how it's almost like, it's almost like they called it, I don't know if they called it that to kind of be a little bit jokey, but it's almost like they're saying, they're reminding you that like, you're not going to get them sober. Right. Right. <laughs> like healthy right. boundaries is knowing that you need to be your own separate person and be doing your own self-care and understanding then how to have different interactions with your loved one. So that book is great. It's full, of really useful things for families and it's not super long and it's, it's pretty accessible and easy. Um, and then the other one that's more classic that people have probably heard of more, Codependent No More, has a ton of great activities and suggestions in it still for the individual. Um, I think that one highlights probably self-care for the family member a little bit more, whereas the craft one highlights how do you improve your interactions and change your, your interactions with your loved one. Uh, but both of those books have useful ideas and... Um, things for family members to consider. I also think codependent no more is maybe better for someone who feels like they're at the point where they may have to really stop interacting with their family member more or kind of have more firm boundaries. Um, whereas the craft book can help you learn how to really interact with them differently if you're gonna maintain a really strong connection with them or if they're living with you and that kind of thing. And then the website, that is actually really helpful is on um, the Center for Motivation and Change, which is an outpatient program in New York. And they have these two things called um, the 20 minute guide. And it's a 20 minute guide for if you're the spouse 
of someone with a substance use problem and a 20 minute guide if you're the parent of someone with a substance use problem. And those are really useful. If you just Google, you know, the 20 minute guide center for motivation and change, those are great. I'll probably put a link to those on our website too, actually. Yeah, great. Anything um, that we can share after this, we definitely can do that through our social channels and through our website. And that's, that's great. And especially because you said, you know, sometimes somebody will come in for treatment and they don't want their family involved or, you know, they, they, there's not that connection there that you're able to make. So I think those resources will be helpful to people listening as well. Um, talk a little bit about how things have gone over the past couple months um, with this pandemic in place. It, have you noticed any change? Like what's, what's different? Like what, what challenges are you guys facing now? Yeah, so we moved all our programming to telehealth. So obviously that's a big, <laughs> big change yeah. right off the bat. We're lucky to be able to do that easily as an outpatient program. So from a telehealth standpoint, one of the improvements that a lot of programs are noticing, and we're not, we don't have always have the means to do like a full, full blown research product project. But anecdotally, I'll say, even for us, it seems like attendance at appointments has become more accessible, especially for folks that might have had challenges like transportation otherwise. You know, to get to us four days a week can be hard. So after the pandemic, we plan to definitely keep a telehealth group or two ongoing so that we can meet people who either prefer not to come in in person or who can't get there in person as regularly as they need. So that was one obvious change. There is a lot of research coming out that's, you know, showing that Drug and alcohol use has increased during the pandemic. Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll even just be able to look at New Hampshire's liquor store sales and probably see some yeah. connections there over the last couple of months, which is, you know, which is a challenge and, and sad in some ways, but probably what we could have expected yeah. with this all happening because everybody has essentially experienced the trauma yes. again yes. of having to make this life adjustment. Um, yeah. And it's been more or less traumatic for different people, depending on, things like employment and relationships and who's available to support them and their health, their overall medical health in general. So, so it's been a challenge. We're happy to be able to continue to support people and offer the program. And, you know, everybody's trying to adapt as best they can. Right. (laughs) It's it's crazy. Um, No, this has been great. And then any, anything else um, before we jump off, that you would like to share with listeners? Um, just, you know, any other advice or insights from what you've seen over the past 16 plus years, I think is what I read that, that you'd like to leave. Uh, with. Yeah. You did a nice job of, of um, guiding us to, I think a lot of the important points that I would have liked to make. I think for family members, since I know that's a large part of your audience, yeah. I think one thing I would really emphasize again would be, positive like belief about your family members capabilities and potential for recovery is really valuable so there are there's studies out there for treatment providers where um you know one really good one that was done by the folks who kind of created the motivational interviewing approach which is also something i talk more about in the approach that we use at our program but they did a, a research project where they told the clinicians before the group started that you're being assigned a group of really motivated and um, high potential clients. And then they had another group where they said to the clinicians beforehand, um, these 
know, these guys are really tough. So <laughs> you're going to have a hard time supporting them. And, uh, you know, their potential for change maybe isn't so great. And so the reality of that study was there was actually no difference between the two groups. And what happened was because of the expectation of the people leading the groups, the therapists in this case, there was different outcomes based off of what they expected. And so to me, that's a human being thing that would also extrapolate out to families. If I'm a family member and I carry the beliefs with me, and again, I understand why people develop these beliefs. It's based off their own experiences. Maybe they had a parent who never, who couldn't get better and died drinking. And so then that, that, that creates a belief that like people don't change. No one gets better. Addiction is progressive and deadly no matter what you do. And those ideas, even if they have some validity in some instances, interfere with people's potential to change. So as a society and as the people who care about folks with these problems can start to have a realistic optimism about, you know, the potential for change that's there, it helps. So it's believing that it's possible, but without carrying that strict expectation, because unfortunately some people do die drinking or taking drugs and causes medical problems that can be really damaging in life. Um, and so again, don't want to invalidate those experiences and, and those family members going through that deserve support. Yeah. And at the same time, you can support the person you care about by believing they can get better, knowing that, and, and believing you can get better as the family. Yeah. There are things you can do to take care of yourself. There's support out there. There's people you can talk to about it. There are things you can do that will help. And just believing that is a good starting point for that process. Yeah. And, you know, it was crazy when we went through this as a family and we said, we don't know about this. We don't know anybody. We don't, you know, what do we do? Um, and now looking back and now that this kind of immediate family we've gained, uh, I wish, I wish I had known that that was there before because you, yeah. you feel very helpless going through it as a family member. But what you don't realize is that it is everywhere around you. You just haven't had exposure to that. And I think I agree that you know, being a bit more open to what this is and being a bit more positive in the approach to it will open doors that you didn't even realize were, were next to you. Um, so I, I, I love that and I, I completely agree. And I do want to be conscious of your time. So thank you for joining us today and thank definitely you. would love to have you back on. I'm sure we'll have many more topics to discuss um, in this world, but really appreciate you joining. Um, and thanks for all the work you're doing too. I, it's definitely... Um, incredible that we can help save lives this way. So thanks for everything you do. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on.